0: I'm excited about the process that we've taken uh, as we began Sunday School this fall to discern some goals to living out our vision together. We've had a vision statement for a few years now. We've had a mission statement for certainly longer than that. And in fact, I was sitting with a group of Lincoln pastors just a little over a week ago talking about how the mission of the church is the same, even though we might have some theological, distinctive distinctive ways that we live this out, the mission of the church is the same if the church is really the church in each local congregation the vision is going to look different because we're not a church in downtown Cincinnati and we're not a church in rural Nebraska so we're a church in Lincoln Nebraska the way we live out that mission is going to look different and I appreciate that we took four weeks this fall to discern that together uh, to figure out how has God specifically called us to live out that vision over the next few years and so the the three things that came out of that Uh, were that we're going to pray together, and that's going to be the focus of today's message. We're going to pray together, and the words that got put to that were to develop a pathway for prayer focused on repentance, revival, and growth. The second uh, goal that we want to engage in over the next few years is to grow together, and that's through small groups. Um, I don't know if you've noticed, but even in a congregation our size, I noticed when I first came here, we think we know everybody, but we don't actually know everybody, and we're not known by everybody. And once we realize that reality, we can organize ourselves so that we can know and be known. And one of the best ways to do that from the, from the beginning of the church has been through groups. Either really big churches figure out that if you wanna know and be known and be cared for within the church, you have to do it within a group context. You're just not gonna know everybody in a big church. And small churches are small groups, basically. They always have existed within the church, and they've worked. And so the goal is that we'd have 70% involvement over the next few years. And we're doing a pretty good job on that, by the way. And then we'd go together. We'd reach further for the kingdom with at least four outreach events per year, a couple within the small group context, and a couple that we do more broadly as the church, because we know that not everybody at every time will be involved in a small group, and we're better together anyways in doing some of those things. A lot of good conversations going on around all of these. I think today we're focused on prayer, but I want to read a quote from Craig Groeschel, covenant pastor of our largest covenant church by far, at a mere hundred thousand, I think, on a week or something ridiculous like that. Um, He says in his book, "It." He says a good vision should be motivational. If your vision doesn't compel people, move people, stir people, your vision is too small. Your vision must be something that burns in your heart, but is too big for you to do on your own. If you could do it, then you wouldn't need God. And I think that's the important part to recognize. Not so much the vision talk there, but if, if we look at these things and we say, well, we could do it ourselves, we don't need God, then we've got something wrong in the formula. I do think we're a doing congregation, and we're really good at it. We're incredibly good. Goals two and three, we could accomplish by tomorrow. I think we're good at organizing. Organizing. And I think we've got a lot going on in those departments to organize. I think one is a supreme challenge for us, not because we're not good at prayer on an individual level, but because as a people, I think this has been a growing challenge for us to be a praying people. And I think this is the God-sized goal that you can see on this very clearly. I think we'll hear God-sized stories in all three. But I think this first one is going to be a really exciting God-sized goal to watch us pray together and understand what that's going to look like and live it out I'm excited I hope you are this, this goal really excites me a lot and so it's time to engage in maximum participation in all of these but especially pray together and so we're going to turn in just a moment back to 2 Kings 22 I need to set it up a little bit before we get there but you're, I, I do ask you to turn there be ready for when we get there 2 Kings 22 we're going to start at verse 1 but Dan already read it expertly I'm not going to read it all again because there's a lot of hard names in there but let's, let's just set it up this way. I had a conversation uh, at the first church I served in uh, an, almost a decade ago, I guess it was, um, with uh, somebody who we were talking about. She was lamenting uh, a church in town that was closing, um, and she said, I just hate to see a church close. You know, it's a God-ordained institution. And, and I reflected the same thing. I hate to see a church close, too but I'm not convinced that every organization that has the word church attached to it is God-ordained. That doesn't mean that churches aren't God-ordained at a local level. It just means that sometimes we have that name attached to us, not us particularly, but a group can, and not actually be the church. I think we are, just so you're clear. I think we're a God-ordained group of people gathered together to do this. But I think what that, the reality that that reflects is sometimes we could even be a God-ordained group and there are plenty of us who are, and be wrong about some things, or not quite on the right course. And I think that's clearly what you see in the text today. God-ordained group of people who have been doing evil in the sight of the Lord for a long time, and they get called back. They get redirected in the process. And the question is, how do we respond to make things right when things are wrong? And I'm not saying everything's wrong by saying that. I'm saying if we look at the text, though, I think we can learn something very specifically here about how we individually can grow in our presence and proximity to God through prayer. And they learn it a really hard way, I think, in Israel. And we don't want to do that. We want to learn it uh, by their example, not our own. So what they discover, we heard this today, they discover the book of the law Uh, King Josiah has them redo the temple uh, because he's a king who does right in the eyes of the Lord and so as they uncover things in the temple they discover the book of the law now Old Testament scholars look at this and some will question what book exactly was it Uh, Old Testament professor Ian Proven um, points out very clearly he says there's no question every time book of the law is used it always means Deuteronomy now deuteronomy itself i don't know has anybody here tried to read through the entire bible like sometimes we'll dutifully do this yep i mean i've done it many times but you try and do it and if you start with genesis you know that you're you started and that's a long book and you get through genesis and you feel pretty accomplished and and by the end of genesis it's moved along there's four kind of big major stories that go on in there um, and you get to exodus and then the story almost picks up a little bit with speed it's exciting and then you get to Exodus 20 and the Ten Commandments, and it's like, okay, now we're in the law. And then you're in the law for a long time, because then you hit Leviticus. And if you've read through the, the Old Testament, and you get to Leviticus, you start to slow down a little bit. You're like, oh my goodness, there's a lot of sacrifice and a lot of offerings, and what does this all mean? And you get through the end of Leviticus, and you want to throw a party, because you've done a really amazing thing to get through that whole book. It takes a lot of work. You usually go through it either slower, if you really take in the details, or fast, if you skim it. And then numbers, people usually skim through that even faster, because it's a lot of numbers. And then you hit Deuteronomy. And I don't know if you've experienced this, but you've read Leviticus, the law, you've read numbers, and there's some interesting stories, and a lot of numbers, and you get to Deuteronomy, and you're like, wait a minute, I thought I read this already. Back in Leviticus, only now there seem like there are more words to the law than there were the first time. Deuteronomy is the second telling of the law. Moses tells it for the second time. And it's the second telling because they're entering the promised land. After God has rescued them from the Exodus, he's freed them through the Passover and then through the Red Sea, and he takes them on. They had the promise of the promised land. They were disobedient. Then the next generation gets to go, and Moses, kind of as his final words, gives them the reminder, okay, here's what God did. And here's how we're supposed to walk because he's giving us this land so that we can be a holy people. That's the book that they found. How to be a holy people in the land they're living in that God gave them where they're being unholy people. And the people were given Deuteronomy well before the days of Josiah because as they entered the land, God was going to have them clear out the land because the people that lived there were unholy. They were doing abominable things in the sight of the Lord. Had they been people that were kind of walking well, maybe they could have lived together, but God didn't want the holy people walking in who are supposed to reveal who God is to the world to get pulled in to unholy ways. So they had to clear it out. The other problem, and I think the one that affects them in this particular case, uh, with entering the land, once it's been cleared out and they can enter it, is then they become a little complacent because God's already given them everything and they kind of get a little too restful and a little too relaxed and they forget the goodness of God as they live in the land. Both of those things they're they're really warned against by giving them the law a second time. Don't forget the goodness of God who's giving you the land. This is how you walk with God. That's why the law is given a second time. That's the book that they find that they've been neglecting all of this time. And they're living in a divided kingdom. And that tells you a lot right there. So there's a map, I think. Uh, yes, perfect. There's a map up there that uh, you can barely read if you would have brought your spy glasses with you. And that little, there's a green, or kind of a greenish blue blob up front that says Israel, and the bottom one, Judah. That's supposed to be one group of people of 12 tribes under one king, but it only lasted three kings before they broke apart. They broke apart uh, under the, just after the rule of Solomon, about 930 B.C., By 722 B.C., so almost 200 years later, about 200 years later, the northern kingdom is conquered, some are exiled, and it's trouble. The southern kingdom of Judah, where Jerusalem, the temple is, makes it through, but they still have kings that are evil in the sight of the Lord. So you've got two separate kingdoms going on next to each other, and they're not getting along. But in both kingdoms, they've always been looking for the next king, David, the man after God's own heart. Just like we in Nebraska are looking for the next Tom Osborne, They were looking for the next David. Same deal. They wanted the the king of victory, the king of a man after God's own heart again. And they're seeing that in Josiah in the text here. Here's one of these kings that's doing right in the eyes of the Lord, that's come back. And you can see then his response. And we'll go to 2 Kings 22, 1 through 3. Let's hear that again. Where Josiah, uh, we'll see who he is, and then we'll see his response in a moment. It says, Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. His mother's name was Jediah, daughter of Adiah. She was from Bozkath. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and followed completely the ways of his father David. You see that? They're looking for the next David. They're seeing that this guy has it. He didn't turn aside to the right or to the left. And then in the 18th year of his reign, he wanted to put the temple back together. That's what he charges them with doing. So he's eight years old, probably had advisors, helping him because nobody wants an eight-year-old running the kingdom that's a bad idea but 18 years later so at the age of 26 is when he makes his first decision to put the temple back together because obviously it's in disrepair it's in ruin it hasn't been used appropriately uh, for many years even if it's being used and you have here this davidic king who's trying to put together one of the most central parts of life and of the law but he doesn't even have the law to do that necessarily and it's what they found when they're reworking the temple. They found that book of the law. And if you see Josiah's reaction, I think that's important for us to catch in verse 11. When the king heard the words, they read the book of the law. So imagine you go home today and you're hanging out with somebody else. Have somebody else read Deuteronomy to, me, to you and see what your reaction is. They read Deuteronomy to him. When he heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his robes. He gave orders to Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam, son of Shaphan, Dan, you did better on that one, for son of Micaiah, Shaphan, the secretary, and Asiah, the king's attendant. Go and inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah about what is written in this book that has been found. Great is the Lord's anger that burns against us because those who have gone before us have not obeyed the words of this book. They have not acted in accordance with what is written there concerning us. So you see King Josiah is deeply disturbed that they're not being faithful to God and God's ways. They're out of step with God's heart. They recognize that he, he moves very quickly and very decisively then to try and figure out how do we course correct this problem? And there are a couple reasons why I think this relates to our life of prayer, both individually, which will be how I encourage you today, but that moving towards the corporate level. Because prayer is about relationship with God, it's not about requests. Those requests matter, but the relationship is what we're trying to achieve in prayer. And that's what they've essentially lost here. They've lost that relationship. They've lost the heart of God. They're out of step with God. And when we pray, that's what we're trying to do is be in step with God and have that relationship with God and know God and be known by God because we commune with God through prayer. They've lost that. And so I'm going to challenge you as we think through the, the course of all that happens here to think through how you today can refine your practice of prayer so that indeed you are closer to God in relationship because of your practice of prayer in your prayer life. They were doing wrong in the eyes of the Lord because they were out of step with God. We want to be people who do right in the eyes of the Lord, and that begins by knowing God. And we can know God in that way. So if we look at the story, what we see is that God has already given them the tools. And I believe he's given us the same thing. God has given us the tools to know him through prayer when they find uh, the book of the law they realize that they've turned on the wrong course and, and whether it was some previous priests in the temple or whatever that misplaced it I don't know maybe somebody conveniently stuffed it in a back shelf we just don't know how it got lost or misplaced Or but scholars do all kinds of fun stuff with that I'm not going to conjecture on that All I can say is it was lost and now it's found. And it comes into their possession. They read it, and here they had an untapped resource, the untapped resource that they needed to walk with God. And we're probably surrounded by those without realizing it. We probably, in our own lives, have those around us all over the place. So my encouragement and admonition to you on this point is put on your spiritual glasses right now and consider what resources you have around you that will increase your life of prayer for some of us we may have books all around i've got an office full of books many of them are on prayer i probably don't even know all that are on prayer in my office some of those would be helpful for some of those we need to open up to the psalms because we don't know how to pray but that's the church's prayer book that's the thing that teaches is one of the great resources that teaches us how to pray or the lord's prayer Well, there are all kinds of prayers in there. We need to open up the book to places that are untapped by us, typically. And read those and use those to teach us how to draw near to God in prayer. What is it that we can expect when we enter into prayer with God? And and how do we do it? We can find it right here. I would also suggest, maybe this is a good Lenten thing for some of you to do when that comes, but fasting. I found to be an appropriate thing. And it doesn't just have to be food, although that's a very uh, useful way to do it, where we give up something good for something better, where we withhold something that might not even be a bad thing, but might time-wise pull us away from our presence with the Lord. We have unutilized resources around us that sometimes we're just not looking for them. We're We're just not paying attention to what's around. And really, it comes down to time. Sometimes the time that we devote We might devote time to prayer, or we might devote no time to prayer, but we might devote time to prayer that could be better spent if we upped our game somehow by the resources around us. So God's given us the tools to know him in prayer. We just need to look for them. The second thing is God has given us the saints. That is, God has given us people who are closer to God than we might be. God hadn't left Judah, that's the southern kingdom in mind here, without prophets. You can not only see that in the text, uh, you can see that if you do a little bit of a historical study. In fact, they seek the counsel of Huldah, the prophet, in this. King Josiah says, we've got to ask of the Lord. And where do they go? They go to the prophet, Huldah. She's a prophet. What does a prophet do? They don't just tell the future. Sometimes they do that. Uh, they tell, they speak the word of God. And we should note, I think this is important to note, that living prophets at the same time in Judah, at this time in history, not only was there Huldah, there's Jeremiah, Zephaniah, Nahum. We've probably heard of them because they have Old Testament books named after them that they were involved in putting together. But they didn't go to those. They went to Huldah, who was there. Huldah, I would just want to point out uh, that she speaks the word of God directly. God is her authority in that case. Nobody else. Her husband is mentioned in that context uh, by association as far as I can see from the text. She gives the word of the Lord. They take it from Huldah as the word of the Lord because he gave the authority. It's the word of the Lord. She gives that and they discovered what was wrong and what needed to be made right when they went to somebody who was directly connected. And when they discovered the law, I think it's really fascinating to see, and this might be us, so I just gave you the, the previous note that we have the tools around us. We might still discover those tools just like they discovered the book of the law and not know what to do with them. They discovered it and they said, wow, we've got to inquire somebody else. What do we do with this? We might feel the same way. We open the Psalms and we say, what do I do with this? There are people who know. And we know those people who know, most likely, so we need to uh, find a believer i think find a mentor in prayer if you don't know how to pray well find somebody who can teach you because they're further down the road of faith they know how to do it a little better than you do all of us have somebody like that in our lives perhaps sitting in this room perhaps other people that we know For my part, I see a spiritual director about every four or five weeks. We do it via Skype, basically, although I'm having lunch with him on Friday because he's in Colorado. But we see each other that way. He's more mature in the faith. He's better at prayer. He's got wise words for me, and he can sit and listen to me and figure out, you know what, I think God is speaking this way. He prays on my behalf. I learn a lot about how to pray and how to be a better believer because I meet with somebody who's more mature in faith than I am. And that matters. That teaches us. And it's apprenticeship in prayer is all it is. Third thing I would point out. The discovery of the law brings on quite a reaction. Sin grieves God. It says sin disappoints God. That's such a light way to say it. We'll just say it that way. Sin disappoints God, and it should disappoint us too. It grieves God. We're doing the exact opposite of who God is and what God wants out of us when we sin. It's a supreme disappointment. Again, we see the reaction in verse 11 of King Josiah. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his robes. In the ancient world, clothing was expensive. Now, let's face it, he's the king, He's got more resources than your average person. That doesn't mean change the fact that it still took a lot of work to produce the clothes in the ancient world. They still were costly, and he's ripping his robe, the outer garment that's probably the most valuable of all of them and probably was more ornate than other people's if he's the king. You never know. The ripping of that is an expensive ordeal. I'd put it roughly the equivalent of not simply punching through your wall if you're mad, but crashing through your garage door right? It's, it's not, you can recover from it, but it's going to cost you, right? And you're going to have to put in some work to do this. That's kind of the equivalent of what's happening here. You tear the robe. It's an act of mourning or of grieving or of lament. That's what you're doing in that moment. You are upset and sad at something that's wrong. And though they had a good king in Josiah if you read the context of what's going on here, there are pagan priests all over the place from the previous kings. That's why the temple's in disrepair. That's why things have gone wrong. They had pagan priests all over the place, even though you had some people who were always trying to do right within the people. You could translate that into our our world today, and you could say the people were going to church, but the cultural influences were strong and pulling them away at regular intervals, just constantly eating away at them. And so my prayer suggestion in this case is that we have to grieve our sin. We're, we're in a culture that, that constantly nips at us to pull away from orthodoxy and right belief in who God is and what God has called us to be and who God has called us to be. That's no different here. If you look at the, the Asherah poles and the worship of Baal, very sexualized stuff is what it is pulling them away there's no difference in our culture in some ways of the the pull that's always there but we have to grieve our own distance from god we know we can grieve the culture's distance but we're distant from god far too often we do things and buy into the culture around us far too often and we need to lament those moments deeply and then the other thing the other side of that the response that that King Josiah and the people have, is that then they say, okay, these influences need to go. So they go through the land and they start tearing down the high places and the idols. We need to do the same exact thing. We grieve our distance from God and the things that caused us to go there. And then we say, now those things need to get out of my life now. I need to be done with those things. They need to stop having their influence. They have no purchase in this place. I'm redeemed. Sin disappoints God. It should disappoint us. It's an offense to God. It should be offensive to us as well. And we need to grieve when we're distant from God so that we can be close again and tear down the idols that we worship instead of God. The final thing that you see that uh, in the text that they do before the end of Josiah's life, after they've torn down the high places and the idols, in chapter 23... Uh, starting at verse 21. It said, The king gave order this order to all the people, Celebrate the Passover to the Lord your God, as it is written in this book of the covenant. Neither in the days of the judges who led Israel, nor in the days of the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah had any such Passover been observed. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was celebrated to the Lord in Jerusalem. There are a couple things about that that fascinate me. They hadn't been celebrating the Passover. That's what the implication is here. We talked about the fact that the book of law was found, that's Deuteronomy, the second telling of the law, so that they could remember their freedom from Egypt when they entered the land. They did evil in the land that God gave them, and and they neglected the law and then neglected doing one of the major things then, over and over, every year, celebrate the Passover when the angel of death passed over you, literally, while God took the firstborn of Egypt so that you could be delivered into freedom, into the land you're now misbehaving in. They weren't celebrating that and celebrating the Lord's goodness to them to even give them the land in the first place in life itself, because the firstborn belongs to the Lord. They weren't celebrating any of that. But God never abandoned them in their faith, forgetfulness and their unfaithfulness. Right? So they start to turn, and there's mercy in the words of the prophet Huldah. Look, you're going to have to face the consequences of your actions. This isn't going to be fixed tomorrow. But King Josiah, you've turned, and I'm going to show my mercy to you. And the people can learn from that what it takes, then, to be right in the eyes of God. Yes, there were consequences, but God's mercy was there when they turned to him. And so we stress prayer as a corporate value. Not because I think we're doing a bunch of wrong in the eyes of the Lord. Don't take that away from this message. We do this so that we can draw close to God and hear together the Lord's voice clearly. Anybody on board with that mission? Sounds good, doesn't it? I couldn't be more excited about it. I love this. God has given us the tools, I believe. God has given us the people. I'm looking at some of them right now. God has given us uh, what we need to accomplish this. And I don't know the prescription for how we do it together. That's the fun part. That's what I get excited about. But I know that when we begin to engage more and more on a local, personal level, We're going to want to find others who are doing the same. We're going to do better at it together. And so, yeah, we need to lament when we miss the mark. It happens. We've got to lament those moments and grieve. We've got to celebrate when things go well and when God's working amongst us. We've got to celebrate that we're released from the curse of sin as God's people. I'm excited to engage in this together. Let's pray right now, in fact, as we engage. Lord, I see before us the riches that you've given us as your people and we're called to be your church in this neighborhood. We've gotten to see plenty of ways that you've acted in the past and we know there are stories that we don't know from the future of how you're going to act in our lives and in the lives of our neighbors around us as we see you work. But God, draw us to your presence first and foremost that we'd have ears attuned to your voice, hearts open to your direction. That we'd have our spiritual glasses on to see the resources you've given us and not overlook the many ways that you speak to us and the many ways you speak through us. Lord, help us grieve when we're distant from you, both individually and corporately. Help us understand what it is to lament those moments and be saddened because we long for your presence. And in the longing, we discover love, God, for you. Help us long for your presence, to be rid of the curse of sin and to be found as your glorified people. God, we pray this all in the name of your Son who empowered us and gave us the Spirit to make this happen. Amen.